listener chella welcome to the fifth episode uh, so today we talk to michael clark michael is a management consultant an ecm specialist a geologist a fighter a fan of artificial intelligence again there's so much to cover just you know from from one person so in our conversation we talk about a lot of topics talking you know about the government the business began we suffered development delays consulting also talk about not sleeping for two months so you know before we delve into that i need to say my bit it's time to listen and chill Michael, so how's the day going so far? Oh, not too bad. I just came back from my first bicycle ride in Vancouver. <laughs> oh, it was the first ride today. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Uh, where where did you cycle around? Oh, uh, not pleasant. I uh, went down to nice. Commercial. Okay. Did a little uh, drive on 10th. I think it's nice. 10th. That has a that has a bike lane, right? It is a bike That's lane, yeah. I can yeah, go yeah. all the way downtown on that bike lane. So, uh, I just oh, nice. uh did my first inaugural run. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> nice. And you've been you've been in Vancouver how long? Oh, since September. Since September and this is your first run, huh? But it's it's a good time to do it now because you know there's less traffic around, I guess. Well, yeah, this uh the that bicycles helps. own the road now. <laughs> yeah. That seems to work. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So uh you know we'll jump straight into it what uh you know what prompted you to start the business what prompted the move from being an employee of sorts to you know having a business well it was um almost necessity really but the okay. the first move um it was sort of a two step move one is to get out from underneath being an employee and right. the other one was looking to create a business that generated its own revenue without me selling my time. Right. So that was the that was the software company that we attempted but in order to start the software company I had to be out consulting on my own otherwise I'd be an employee of some fortune 500 corporation and they'd own the intellectual property. So I had right. to resign right. and uh okay apologize because it was it was a good job. <laughs> I liked it. Um okay. good people. Right. But then right. um you know i just felt i had to start this thing and see it through okay. so then that's when i left that's and started consulting okay and and in regards to the you know uh, usually to start out uh, your own business or sorts you you want to make sure you have a couple of clients so when the clients sort of switched over from the company that you used to work for to you as you know as your own company was that transition easy were there hurdles you faced at that point uh i had to switch i had to leave yeah. and uh, right. give give those companies up and go and okay. actually um it came as a transition because i i was right. consulting and then i went back into another consulting firm for some work okay and then right. they then they had a downturn and laid me off so right. it was then i was out knocking on doors in downtown calgary and uh, happened to uh, talk to somebody and that said you know what uh, we are looking for somebody with your skill set but you need to talk to xerox so i ended up being right. a subcontractor to xerox in this okay. large in this corporation so that's that's how so, that's what kicked it all off in terms of a, the consulting and then i was and the, funding the software development with consulting money okay 
and how long did the software development take like since you started consulting mm-hmm. it took um, too it to, took too long four years roughly there's there's a point right. i i think a lot of people would have pulled the plug earlier than i did and i just right. i just kept on going this is such a great idea this has to work it has to work it has to work um and uh never really did John, well, no, it sort of did, but it sort of, it really sort of. didn't go. Um, and I know the space, and I know some other people that have tried to get into this space, and it's extremely difficult because it's one of these things where you need a project, but you need to be not an objective consultant. You need to own that project. You, it needs to be your company that is first bidder on the project, and the client has to be okay with what you're doing. So that that was the evasive part of going doing the consulting gig, and that's what never really happened. So uh, it was always, oh, we're almost there, we're almost there, we're almost there. We use it here and we use it there, but it never really took off. So it's been consulting mainly. And and then you said the the software would then evolve into something else, or is that still well, uh, the main? There was a there was a target like we first created the software as an enterprise content management migration tool. And uh, it's very high volume. It can do, it's multi-threaded so that you can just crank up, you know, 20, 30 CPUs and on virtual machines and run it concurrently. And it would all end up in the right place at the right time, which took some, some programmatic uh, fiddling to do that. It was about two months of testing just to make that work. But, Anyway, uh, that that was uh, successful. I mean, it's an excellent product. It did perfect work, and it created all the all of the audits, audit trail, and everything on okay. every object moved. And, and so, right. but the the kicker was that the real target was to use that technology uh, to move content around between different systems. It's like uh, okay. like a middleware kind of concept but that we we couldn't get past the migration point you know we couldn't we couldn't pivot uh because we we didn't find that that client was elusive that we had to find so it was one of those things we made some choices and uh i if i had to do it over again i'd do some different things (laughs) okay well in hindsight that's that's what most people think i guess i would think that about my life uh, if you had to, uh, you know, explain ECM to, because this would be more of a tool for, I'm assuming, a little bigger companies as compared to a budding entrepreneur. If you would have to explain that in a nutshell to them, how would you go about it? Uh, well, it's enterprise content management is something that you find in, uh, let's say, a state government like California or the province of Alberta or something like that. And it would be a major department that run, that installs the software and sets up the, I guess you'd call it a, a web technologies. It could be used for a number of different things for web technologies or for records management or for scanning applications or for uh, integrations to an ERP like uh, PeopleSoft or something that's storing scanned images, you know, anything like that. And so- Basically, it stores the content files, which is like your document file or your scanned image, along with the data that describes it so that then you can search for it later and find it when you need it or dispose of it or, you know, that, that's or move it on through a workflow process or something. So that's what the main um, 
concept is in those systems, um, while they're not terrible, well, some of them are rather proprietary, but they have their own APIs at the app, you know, the programming interfaces, and you have to create the connector. Yeah, you have to create a connector for each one of the ones that you're going to connect to. So that's what we were facing is writing connectors to various systems. So we have Documentum we had down. We nailed that one, okay. and then we started working for you know working on other ones like Alfresco and uh, SharePoint and things like that. Okay. And and in regards to because you mentioned that governments use this, uh, do enterprises like uh, you know, private corporations also use this? Oh yes, yeah. Um, we're we're big in the uh, we were big in the oil space, oil and gas, okay. and uh, right. for example, uh, a gas company might use it for their. Uh, uh, to create their land contracts because the, pi the pipelines okay. have to go across land and they have contracts for the land or they may have gas exploration land uh, and they may right. also have uh, scans of the pipeline, you know, x-rays of their pipelines and for safety and inspection sheets and all that sort of thing. Those kinds of records are very critical and they, they by law, have to keep them for a certain amount of time. They can't just throw them out. Okay keep them forever sort of thing so that there's a lot of okay. management around that and it can be like uh, sears used the biggest use case that i was concerned with or involved with was uh, sears online catalog is they they used okay. uh, a web publishing tool hooked onto an ecm and had like three billion nice. uh, images or something like that in it okay and uh, so that was the other question about uh, data loss because it's such massive amounts of important data that you all are transferring, if mm -hmm. you will. How important, like, what's the offset? How do you all balance that out? Uh, with, like, like for example, we we do it for CRMs. So when we're migrating a CRM, mm -hmm. for example, we'll have a dev dev instance of sorts, a staging server, just to make sure that we never lose the data. What's the sort of parameters you'll have? Well, it, it really depends on the internal policies. Uh, we used our product to okay. for one project where they were creating, they were having uh, problems. It was a large car leasing company and they, in okay. the biggest one in the world. And they were having trouble managing their contracts where they sell, sell cars. And it, their, their system was slowing down and falling over at certain levels of usage. So uh, right. we were called in and what I used it for is to replicate the production environment down into test with the same security parameters, the same folder structures, this, all of the same metadata. It was replicated down into hmm. test the test environment. And we changed a few things so you couldn't accidentally go in and think you were in the production environment when you're actually in the test environment. So, but then we protected that, okay. but the, that, that's an example of uh, what we could use migration for. Then a lot of times it's right. somebody that says, oh, well, we're, we're getting rid of documentum and we're going to go to open test, which is a different mm -hmm. product. So you have to export it out of documentum with all the metadata, preserve all the audit trails okay. because if you've got, if you've been using the system for 10 years, there's a, going to be a certain amount of garbage in there. You know, people managed to put a multiplication sign or an angle bracket in the name of their file or something like that. And then, you know, when you go to read it with, with the API, the API can't read it. 
so you know a lot of a lot of applications especially scanning operations if you don't set the filters up then uh, then you get like hundreds of thousands of files with garbage in them because of the uh, the what do you call that when it's it's uh, character optical character recognition makes RCR makes a mistake and thinks that uh, a V is uh, is a greater than sign or something like that so then you so you might get a hundred thousand out of two million objects you may get a hundred thousand with garbage in them so then you have to go back and fix them all so you need an, an audit trail to tell you exactly which ones are broken which ones didn't go so you have to go and look them up and find okay. out what's wrong with them and then do them one at a or a small batch smaller batch you know or maybe one at a time if okay. there's not that many so just uh, from my understanding so the software sort of does its job and then at that end the testing level is where you all have to sort of step in and see what's yeah. what's, what's going wrong where yeah, typically if, if you're going to do a migration you uh, you have a team that knows the original system and it would be like mm -hmm. myself somebody was going to say well i need to export this out of document mm -hmm. and then you call me but right. if it was say an open text or a sharepoint instance and I wasn't, I wasn't right. responsible for doing that. They wouldn't want me pumping right. stuff in there unless I was working for their team because then I could okay. create a gong show for them by pumping in garbage, right? If, if I typically, I'm not, not that I would, but you know, it's, it, there's a possibility right. that right. I could. And they've, they've probably run into yeah. situations like that where somebody has messed up and caused them a huge amount of pain and it's their fault. Because the you know the right. the vendor says well you said that you were going to import this stuff for us, and so what I do typically is just put it all out on the sh on like a shared drive that the other team can access, and then they can grab it and pull it okay. into their system, unless unless I do unless I'm doing both, which is which would be ideal right. because then I'd have nobody to blame if something screwed up, so <laughs> it would be on me. Right? That's 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 why you take it on yourself. Yeah. Okay. So in, in regards to the things that could go wrong with uh, with government projects and uh, private ones, do you uh, run into security issues? I know Canada is uh, uh, sort of a little stricter as to where your data has to be, you know, stored of sorts, and how uh, that uh, that budget cuts, uh, you know, how all of that impacts your business because it seems like it's very vital. So how does that? Yeah, happen? that's. <clears throat> that's that's true because um, if you're say if you're a Canadian business, you say the mm -hmm. government of Alberta wanted to put their stuff up in a cloud right. to sort it all out and reclassify it and then put it back down in another system. Mm -hmm. That cloud would have to reside in Canada. Like they'd have to use right. like an Azure or an Amazon instance in Canada, uh, which they've spun up recently. That that wasn't always the case. Five years ago, there may right. be one or two. Now, pretty much all of them have a Canadian presence. So that, and then you'll find the same thing happening with, um, say, I we did a project for the uh, corrections department in in uh, California, and we couldn't put okay. anything on any Canadian servers whatsoever. That it was so locked down, they were so security conscious that everything had to be done mm -hmm. according to their their strict protocols and then it was verified and checked and it was there was a whole lot of safe safeguards involved so that uh, we've, we've run into that and in terms of downturn uh, well 
things have become relatively quiet. A lot of projects have been put on hold. Oh, this uh, this past few months. During this yeah, time? That's every, just okay. about everybody uh, I talked to said, oh, yeah, you'd be great for this. Um, but we're, we're, we're put everything on pause until this is all over with. So. Understood. Okay. So that's how it's uh, mm -hmm. to deal currently. Okay. So in, in regards to cloud computing or the way it's evolved, how has that helped your business, uh, you know, the ECM industry, if you will, uh, particularly? Well, it, it actually has not helped us yet, but um, I'm oh, currently working with, uh, say, Amazon. S I'm working on Amazon S3 application to put uh, and certification to get rolling in that space. So that, you know, those are the kinds okay. of things that uh, I think are going to be essential, uh, either Google, Microsoft, okay. or Amazon. Uh, one of the, all, maybe all three of those technologies are going to be absolutely essential because a lot of organizations are losing their resistance to cloud. The, the cloud is proving itself to be very resilient and secure, especially if it's a private cloud. And, uh, you know, their, uh, their fears are washing away. So they're trying, they're trying this and they're trying that. And they're saying, well, if we took all this metadata and put it in a data lake on Amazon, then we could do analytics and find out where our customers are really interested, you know, et cetera, et cetera, what they're actually buying right. as opposed to what we think they're buying, you know, and, and by looking at invoices and, pulling out products you know, and stuff like that. So the that's becoming far more powerful and in ordinary, you know, it's, it's, everybody's doing it. So if you know how to, if you know anything about statistics, uh, linear regression or whatever, then you're in, you're doing data analysis, yeah. right? So there's a lot more of that going on. Yeah. And uh, I think that there's, going to be, we're just on the front end of the adoption for those cloud systems. And it's going to be far more mainstream, especially if the prices come down. Because there's, there's some resistance, especially if you've got large image files or something like that. And uh, say Amazon is charging you by the bit to store that stuff. It's going to get very expensive. Uh, I mean, the alternative is okay. you build yourself a data center and throw a whole bunch of servers in there and pay for NAS licensing and all that stuff. But you know, that's that's which yeah, that's which the alternative. That's what they're facing. You uh, mentioned working as a business analyst. How do you get started in that profession, and how that helped shape uh, the business you are in now? Uh, it's it was a long and convoluted path. Okay. <laughs> I was uh, actually it's kind of interesting. I, there's uh, my degree dates back to 1979, and it was a geology degree, and okay. I was all ready to rock and roll in the oil business and everything. And along comes this government policy in Canada in 1980 that basically killed off all of the mining and exploration work and forced any American corporations to leave Canada in 1980 okay. and it was put in place by a fellow named Pierre Trudeau, who's the prime minister at the time. Yeah. Now his son is the prime minister now. 
Right. So no, I lived in, in <laughs> Montreal. The airport's named after him, I think. I yeah, yeah. So, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, that's uh, so he he put into those policies and basically knocked me out of the geology business. And I did the next, I was very quite fascinated with computers, so I just started working in the computer field and initially in sales. Okay. And uh, was, that was okay, but it was in Halifax, Nova Scotia, so there's not a whole lot going on down there. And so uh, um, I ended up teaching at the community, essentially self-taught on object-oriented programming and database design and systems analysis and so on. But, uh, and I had been doing my own programming on the side, sort of little side businesses and, and training people and tutoring people and writing programs for them and stuff on the side while I was doing this training and stuff. So then um, I get a chance to go to Bahrain and work for a company called Documentum as their training manager for the Middle East. So and, I, and they're they're also based in the U.S., right? They were based in Pleasanton, California. Okay, okay. So they were, go on. <laughs> the company was a spinoff from from Xerox, actually, from okay. Xerox Labs, and uh, the and so I I was working in Bahrain, and then I got uh, that whole company shut down, and I moved over to the head office in California, and worked there for a while. So that was uh, that was quite a learning experience, and. Uh, working in a, it was at the time there were 250 employees when I started working for them. So it was, it's a, sort of a medium stage startup. And they had all their funding and they were going like gangbusters. They were selling incredible amounts. They, they, they became like the number one large corporation, large government agency ECM product. And uh, every, everything was like, there was no, the sky, there's no limit, you know, there's, mm. it, the sky was wide open. We were we were going to take the world, but then uh, 9/11 happened, and so I uh, ended up uh, working for Schneider Electric Square D, do working okay. with Documentum, doing web publishing work for them to publish their all of their product catalog out to a website. So I worked with the engineers to write the product catalog and push it out to their website, which was massive. If you ever go to Schneider Electric, and uh, yeah, and, that, I'm and, assuming and that's a their, lot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's thousands and thousands of products, and, and right. so that that was a fun job. And then that's where I came up with this crazy idea for moving content around because they had pro they couldn't move product content around from one repository to another, and they had it all over the world. So they had these little silos of information everywhere. And they couldn't synchronize it, so that and I came up with this Yeah, I said, "Well, I could do this." You know, I had the idea. I said, "Well, let's write this." And they said, "No, no, it's ours if you write it." Sorry, you know, so I had to go, and uh, so I had this crazy idea that I was going to unify the world. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that, but, that's how businesses should start, I guess. So, well, if, if it had been perceived as a widespread problem, and it is, but generally I underestimated a couple of things. One, the, and that's just about the time that uh, offshore work started in a very big way. So you could get a team of 10 guys doing this work uh, for not very much money. Right. And you wouldn't have to have any foreign software installed mm -hmm. on your systems that they didn't trust. Right. And so that's kind of where it, where it went from there. That's, uh, 
that was my biggest obstacle. And uh, if if I and uh, well, if I had put the price down a lot more initially, I probably would have got a lot more work. But it's one of those. Oh well, I could have done it this way. But um, sure. things. Okay. I'm assuming you you mentioned the the people who did it more of you know my color who had started you know developing and India is a land of developers at this point. Oh yeah, so. well I I got right in there and I hired a bunch of guys from India too, but right. uh, it's it was like it just became. Um, it, it wasn't like one of the problems that we solved is that right. you had to have experts that knew what they were doing and they were expensive. Right. But then okay. suddenly they weren't expensive anymore. So Understood. then so that that's what changed. Right. You can understand how the just the structure cost wise, how your production everything was lowered and yeah, that automatically must have impacted uh, your costs. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's no way that we could and we were kinda hung up on the big enterprise model. I don't I had so many people tell me that's Mike, don't do that don't do it this way. Right. Go go business to consumer. Keep it small, keep the deals down, you know, maybe get five, ten dollars a day for or per month for a user, but you'll have a million users, so it doesn't matter. So but I didn't go that way. I figured that we our competitive advantage was enterprise, but it really was <laughs> there was there was no entry into that space that we could find. Okay. There were so, a couple others that did, but there's only like two companies in the space that ever were really successful. Okay. The company still works as a B2B at this point. It's not a uh, business to consumer, is it? <clears throat> well, that's one of the things I'm thinking about working on. But uh, okay. Okay. It's, uh, it's, it's what business we do get is, is uh, C2C. You know, we, okay. We'll get a city that calls us up and say, we have to dump all our stuff out of this system and import it into another one. Can you do that? So we're, you know, we're, we're basically really good at getting stuff out of old systems. Okay. And uh, I don't know, I, there are some systems that we can export from, like Documentum, and Project Docs. And, oh, I, I'd have to look at a list. We, we have a list that's on the website. Right. But uh, okay. anyway, so we there are... But those are what you all can... Uh, that's what we can okay. do for people. So at the small end of things, um, we deal with the cities and towns a lot. And they, mm -hmm. they tend to have a mixed bag of different products that they're using. Uh, on the large end, what we were we were talking targeting, and where we I do a lot of my consulting is in Fortune five hundreds and government agencies. Okay, uh, Chevron, right. for example, or uh, Government of Alberta, okay. or something like that. Okay, so you did mention part of the next phase, if you will, is to also have a consumer aspect to the business. True. Yeah. Uh, in regards to sort of how the company has grown, you also mentioned there's now a lot of people who also work for the consulting, or is it there are right? Well, sometimes so if you... it, it comes and goes. It de it depends on the projects. It's very okay. Uh, flexible. So it's it's mostly contractors. Then it's not yes. uh, full time employees. Well, if you will. yeah, the only full timers were was myself really. And right. everybody else was, and, and my, my wife was working in the admin side for a while. So the, okay. that's okay. where it was full-time. We had a uh, full-time developer for a while. Um, okay. And uh, he's, uh, we, we couldn't really maintain lows, you know, in the highs. It was, it was hard to maintain a, a full-time staff. Okay. okay. So as you mentioned, the lows and highs, what would you say was 
like one of the worst ebbs, one of the worst lows, you know, through this uh, vast career of sorts. Well, we were, oh, it just, it killed me. To, I mean, at when this that happened. time, because I'm time, sure you've overcome it, right. Yeah, at, at the time we had ourselves set up and I invested very heavily into having a preparation for some government contracts in the U.S. And oh. then along came the, what they call the fiscal cliff, where they, they 2012. yeah, yes. and there's no, there's no approval of the government contracts. So they all got canceled for the next year, and then it happened again the next year. So those two years, we just just uh, gutted our strategy. We were we were in retreat after that. Okay, so is that when the budget, the budget size was reduced, or they just stopped uh, any new projects? It's, every all the funding was canceled. They just like cancel it if it was ongoing you were okay but if it was a new project it was just canceled and then they didn't get their funding for the next year oh well they they did finally and they sort of little in little fits and starts and then the, along came the next year and they canceled and then they canceled that uh, which was just uh, devastating for us and for a lot of other companies too i, I think it really impacted documentum as a whole in fact okay. yeah i think it really hurt them uh, how it. how big are they right now? Do they still have 250-odd people, or have they grown in size? Well, they grew up to about 4,000 people, and uh, this is around that time, you know, the fiscal cliff stuff. And then they were bought by, who bought them? Um, Dell, Dell Computing bought them. Oh, Dell bought them, okay. And okay. They, then they spun them off to OpenText. And OpenText now has the document and product line. It's sort of they bought the large, very large uh, corporate and government accounts, basically. And they're, those are the ones still, document is still in use in a big way in, in the United States. Um, and uh, just because of how scalable it is. It is. Huh? Okay. So, uh, so the end of that Yang. Uh, what was your best uh, success so far? Or the one day, one memory that you're like, this is, you know, this sort of ensured that, you know, I'm doing the right thing. I'm in the right business. Well, there was a company, it was that car licensing company. And, and when we got the multi, when they got the multi-threading done and mm -hmm. I moved a huge repository that normally would take, like it was taking those guys with the tools that they had weeks to set up their, their dev and test systems, and I did one overnight. Wow. Okay. And, and they came in in the morning. I said, yeah, it's ready to go. Here you go. Tell me if there's anything wrong. And they just looked at me funny. Was, oh, wow. <laughs> and, and that was when I sort of high-fived myself. <laughs> and wow. and uh, it, was, I mean, it was overnight. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's some, you know. Like if you said a few weeks and you brought it down to a few days, I'd be like, okay, that's that's good enough. This is great. Wow. It was okay. it was fantastic, and and uh, it was it was really it was one of those business decisions that went up oh. to one department that I was working for, and there was another department which was IT, and we presented this to IT, and they said no, because we have a relationship with this other company, so I didn't get it. And I was like, oh. okay. you know, but it was, uh, it was we're really close, uh, but it was, it proved that it could work. It was more, that was uh, like proof of concept time for us. Right, right. Okay, sweet. So uh, in terms of 
with the mindset how much do you think that has changed as being an employee to being an employer of or or a business of your own this the like the thought of maybe you know the fact that you uh, might have to be answerable to someone or that you're accountable for everything factor into decisions uh, yeah it's a different it's it's a very different mindset because and i've been an employee in a large corporation as well so you you feel the pressure is like okay well somebody that you report to is reporting to somebody else is reporting to somebody else and is reporting to somebody else mm-hmm. and you have to make right. that chain look good from your position right. but you're also right. looking to get up that chain because that's the only mm-hmm. way to get from your dollar sign to their dollar sign to their dollar sign you know it's it's like this corporate ladder right. thing and uh, right. Right. you get to you you're sort of forced to submerge your personality into whatever that corporate situation is and fit into the team and all that right. stuff whereas with mm-hmm. a contractor i mean there's still social pressures of course you have to get along and you have to be polite you have to actually be more polite because you realize that your customer is your boss you know mm-hmm. and it's as an employee it's hard to maintain that but as a contractor it really is so you will end up working you know if something's not working right rather than going home at five o'clock, you I'll stay in there and work till whenever it's fixed right, right. because if I don't mm-hmm. I could be walking out the door with a box the next day you know it's contractors are dime a dozen you just let them that's why they use you right so they can get rid of you so yeah. uh, you, you're really on your toes a lot more and you're very much more responsible for what you do and what you say because right. if you tick somebody off it's the same thing as you're under the bus. You, you don't want to be thrown under the bus for something going wrong so you're constantly validating everything double checking everything okay. sweating all the details and it's it's more work okay. but it's more right. uh satisfying work right the 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 reward to risk ratio is much better on on this yeah. scenario obviously absolutely yeah. and you get paid more and right. you can hire people and you know it's exactly. it's far more dynamic kind of environment in your you talk to the customer like the boss the guy that's signing the check you can you go in and meet him first the guy like the CIO or whoever the director is that signing your check you meet them first and then you go downstairs and work with the team but you know that you that's the guy that you're accountable to because he's right he's going to write your checks right is so it's yeah. and and i think that's what that that level of account, that responsibility the the sort of a uh, chameleon attitude that you have to have you know to modify yourself to as and when you need to deal i think that what, what i believe truly you know with entrepreneurs and the people who start their own business i think they they learn that much faster than working for a larger corporation in my it's, opinion you you you're yeah. forced to like i mean i've i've worked with yeah. guys <laughs> some of the guys that are in in it extremely bright but some of them can be okay. what's the polite word eccentric <laughs> so you're down in the IT room and you're working on servers and you're carrying on with these guys and it can be a lot of fun and can be a little weird and you know you see guys with neckties tied around their heads and things you know but then right. if you have to keep in your mind that when you go upstairs to report you got to put your tie and put a jacket on go into the meeting room and look respectable because there's management sitting in the room Right, right and you, 
sort of switching gears. Uh, yeah, you have to switch gears and know who you're talking to. And you might uh, walk from, from that meeting and then into a, another meeting with offshore developers who might be in Vietnam or Brazil or where, you know, wherever. And uh, you, you have to switch gears again because you don't know who's in the room with them. It could nice. be a director nice. or, or vice president nice. of Brazil operations. There's, you know, that's, there's a whole complexity and, you know, but it's, it's uh, uh, like you say, it's a learning, ex it's, you, you learn very quickly like this. You don't want right. to make mistakes in that yeah. scenario. Exactly. Right, right. Okay. So other than, uh, you know, the ECM and, you know, your own software, what are the other tools that you use, say, on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, um, well, if, if you're, let's, it really depends on what you're doing. If you're uh, doing project management, you're into Microsoft Project or some other more sophisticated uh, resource scheduling tools. Um, and or... Jira. Yeah, and or if you're... Uh, doing records management you're you've got the hood up on um an administration console and you're trying to figure out why something's not working uh why the mm -hmm. you know why somebody can't see something or why it's huh. there's garbage coming out when they try to view a, an image or something so that you you really depend on and or if you're an architect you've got visio and the microsoft project and the whole office suite and you might have to pull data out and throw it into a database and or flip it around and try to query it to find out what's wrong with the data you know there's a whole bunch of whole suite of tools that you have to have to be familiar with and each client tends to have their own so you have to use what they're using because it, you know you have to compare yeah, you, you, you can't have, hand right. them a file that's not going to work you know you say okay here's mm -hmm. your report and you one of the things that you'll find if you're working with ecms actually if I'm also uh, just ramping up on Adobe, okay. their, their experience manager, which is like a web publishing tool, tool set, is they all have their own user interface. They're basically doing the same thing, um, but they're doing it differently so that uh, there's a different administrative interface for every one of these tool sets. So if you're working with Documentum, there's one called Composer that is brutally complex, huge, administrative user interface. Um, so Adobe has their own version of that. Just, I would say it's a lot more simple than the documented one, just from their design perspective. Um, okay. You know, and uh, as I mentioned, the project management tools and so on is, there's, and you have to, if you walk in, the thing about consulting is if you walk into a company and they say, okay, well, this is what we use. Have you used it before? And you say, nope. And then you've got one one week to learn how to use that. <laughs> so you you basically you're not going to get a whole lot of sleep for a couple of weeks. You know, you're going to be up all night playing with this stupid thing, and trying to figure out how to get things done. Okay, so we'll we'll use that as a pivot to to the next part, which is more general tidbits. Uh, the you know the third and fourth. I'll combine the two. So what is the longest day that you've worked without sleep? <laughs> Uh, that would be when I was learning Documentum. Wow, okay. And I went to, uh, when I got the job in Bahrain, I went to London to take training for two weeks. And it actually turned out to be about a month. 
um, because one of them had, I had to wait a week for one of the last more complicated ones. Um, but I was basically going in at six in the morning and tinkering with things and leaving and the, the course would run until say five or six because they, their hours run later during the day um, in Europe. And, oh, okay. uh, and they, they start like in, in France, they start at 6 a.m. and they take a couple hours for lunch and they come back and they work until 7 or 8 p.m. You know, it's wow. so, but in the, in the training world, this, uh, and the trainer was very much connected to the Barini office so that he was basically certifying me to go work there. Okay. So I had to learn this. And I don't know if you're familiar with Documentum because it's it's a beast to learn. Uh, it's okay. extremely complex a thing. Uh, it's kind of like learning. People keep saying this to people, but nobody believes them. It's it's like learning PeopleSoft or SAP. You know, it's it's right. at that level. It's extensive. Right? It's okay. very wide product line. Tons of mm. things to know. Tons of things to screw up <laughs> if you're not careful. So um, so that I think. And the, the next month that I was there trying to get myself set up to deliver the first course that I had to deliver in wow. Saudi Arabia to Aramco. <laughs> and they had pretty high yeah. expectations. Like that, that, those guys are all graduated from Ivy League universities and, and uh, they have had all the training and so on. And they're used to getting the cor big corporate training. So that was a big... That, period for about two months i hardly slept at all it was wow i guess get a few hours of sleep and i'd be right back in the next early the next morning working wow this is like a like a long night two months wow okay. yeah yeah very like seven days a week um okay 12 hour, 12 14 hours a day just steady for that okay that was the toughest and one and you mentioned aramco were they the same company that on the very first day when they publicly traded they I think they overshot the record. It was eighteen hundred and nineteen hundred per stock. That's it. That, that's the that's, the, right. that's <laughs> the Saudi Arabian oil company. It's it's right. a huge corporation. It is very huge. high standards. Okay. Right. So it seems like you know you clearly have lived in multiple places. What would you say has to be your favorite, if you will? Well, I have a number of sort of sentimental favorites. Uh, I really like the Bay Area, San Francisco. It just, you just, mm, I just kind of, every beautiful. time I see a picture of the bridge, I, I get this yearning to go back. For some reason, I just want to go back there. Um, mm. I also like Raleigh, North Carolina, but for different okay. reasons. Uh, okay. it, it was it, so hospitable. And I also like the, I've worked in Kuwait as well as Bahrain. And in the Middle East, the hospitality is just over the top. It's I you huh. never I never experienced anything like it. It's, it's oh, uh, I can tell some stories. The, the hospitality is just amazing. So there there are okay. certain places that I that I really enjoyed working in. I, I liked Houston for different reasons. <laughs> so okay. I'm a big nice. uh, barbecue fan. So <laughs> oh, <laughs> it makes sense. If, Texas, yeah, yeah. if you're going to like barbecue, it's going to be there. So right. there's a okay. number of places. So well, as follow up to that, have you uh, you mentioned SF? Have you also been to San Diego? And is SF still preferred over San Diego? I've been to San Diego. I haven't worked there. I really okay. like San Diego as as, okay. a, as a tourist. No, I, yeah, no, I love the place. I, I lived there for a, like a short duration. We had a project there, but 
just amazing. Like twenty minutes to the beach, twenty minutes to the mountains. It's it's amazing. <laughs> like, I love the place. Yeah, and there's wine country there and everything. So exactly. Yeah. And then uh, the Middle East. Yeah, I lived in Dubai like a couple of years back. So I just I love uh, Dubai in general. It's just uh, to me at least Dubai felt more like. Uh, a sort of mall, like it was like you know, there's so everything is so pristine. You're like, okay, this this can't be real. <laughs> so you know that that feels a little too much. I think yeah, the, you you need a little bit of the Vancouver sort of dirt to balance it out. I guess. Well, yeah, it's it's uh, it's not much of an outdoor life. There are certain periods of time, like in the spring and fall, where it is absolute heaven to go and walk outside in in that place you know with all the flowers and the warm breeze and yeah. palm trees and you know you just don't want to leave but i mean this it can be really nasty in the in the heat oh it was it was grueling i think we went on hikes over there but there wasn't a view it was more to just see rocks because you know <laughs> at that point everything's so dry but you still want to you know try and get in your uh, outdoor experience of sorts true yeah wonderful okay so, do you happen to have like a favorite quote or saying or a motto that you you know sort of refer to when you're down? Uh, when I'm done or not dead? Uh, when you're down, whenever you feel oh, oh. Sort of low or yeah, well, I'm I'm a really glass half full. I mean, I can be pounded down and still smile, find something to right. smile about. So it's um, I guess you'd say I'm fairly resilient. But I, I used to love this one song that I, I actually set it as my alarm. And um, it's called Tub Thumping. Tub Thumping. Okay. Yeah, it's something I get knocked down, but I get up again. You know, it's oh, okay. hey, you're never going to keep me down kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the kind of thing. That's, I'll get myself up in the morning with something like that. I forget who the singer was, but it's got a very nice beat, I remember. I get knocked out. Yeah, I don't know. It's the UK, UK band. <laughs> right. Yeah. right, right, right. Nice. Okay, sweet. Uh, what's a favorite hobby of sorts, and how often do you indulge in it? <laughs> Actually, it's become, uh, well, I've I've taken some time over the past year, as my wife has, mm-hmm. was uh, had an illness, so I wanted to stay home with her. Oh, I'm sorry. And so I've, I've uh, taken some time off and then get just getting everybody's fine. We're getting back into the swing of things and, and I'm just getting back to work and everything. But um, uh, let me see. I've lost a track. Oh, what was the point? Of, that That's kind of an emotional thing. Kind of got me off track. What was the question again? Uh, no, no, I get it. I mean, uh, it was just about a favorite hobby. Oh, the, it's been writing. I didn't realize that I could write. Well, I I don't know if I can write or not. You'd have to read one of them and tell me. But science science fiction. I mean, I was writing science fiction. I had this story in my head, and I just kept writing. I started writing it down on pieces of scraps of paper, and ended up with all these scraps of paper in a notebook. And I thought, well, I should write this. You know, nobody else is going to write it. It's coming out of my head. So it's it's up on Amazon. I self-published in December, so. Oh really? Oh, so it's it's, it's published too. Now, ah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. sweet. What's what's the title of the book? Well, I'd love there's to one it. called Meta Sentient. Meta Sentient. Okay. Yeah. So is this about the the, the mind of sort of consciousness? Mind, mind okay. uploading, uploading oh, your right, mind right. into a computer. Right. Okay. And uh, there was that movie Transcendence, I think, which is mm-hmm. I think. Uh, sort of on the same logic, if you will. Yeah, there's, but, okay. there's uh, Altered Good. Carbon is another series. That right, if you're right. into that, that's uh, okay. 
So there's, there's, there's a lot of talk about that now. Actually, um, Elon Musk has invested and also... Oh, yeah, neural, neural networks. Neural think, networks, yeah. yeah. But there's some other wow. ones that they've invested in that are stealth and that, that wow. came out, okay. and then they went quiet. Their websites disappeared and everything. And then I read that wow. there is a lot of investment in creating uh, systems that you can map out your mind, like basically map your mind, and right. copy it into a machine. That's wow. happening now. So I, 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 I stumbled around these ideas around, again, around 2012. Uh, there's a, a conference on it in 2013 that I really wanted to go to, but I, I couldn't okay. make it, but it was in New York City. And I, and I, but I just read and watched all the videos and all the talks and read all the papers and stuff, and I was fascinated. So that's kind of stuck in my head, and it started evolving into a story. So I, I've been writing uh, it's on the weekends, you know, when I wasn't doing anything or in the evening or in the morning. Usually it was like I, I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5, 6. So I, rather than dozing off, I would get up and say, okay, well, I'm awake. I'll go write for three or four hours and then go to work. Nice. So that that's how it began, and now you know you do it. Really yeah, I, I do it. Okay. I tinker with it. I I think it's due for another round of editing. I've made a few sales, but I don't have any. Wow, that's fantastic reviews yet. So I don't go, know, maybe uh, I should go back and fix that up. <laughs> no, I mean I'm hoping some people listen and you know go check this. What's you said there was another book or uh, was the second in depth? There's two it? books in the series. They okay. sort of go together. I really I thought I'd put them together, but according to the publishing norms of today, you don't want right. something that's 400,000 uh, words. You know, it's, it's 180,000 seems to be what science fiction publishers want. And I self-published because I couldn't be bothered with going through that whole publishing right. narrowly enough. And, and the, the percentage that you have to give to the publishing label, that's, that's much higher too. Yeah, well, right? it's instead of getting like 70%, you're getting less than 10%. And that's if, right. even if it takes off. You may end up exactly. traveling on yeah, your own yeah. nickel around doing uh, signing book signings all over the world, and then you end up in debt because you haven't sold any books. You know, and so oh, really? uh, wow. it, it's it, not very many authors are successful. It's just a really small percentage uh, that are, and it's quite a romantic. Uh, accomplishment, you know, is oh, a published author, wouldn't that be nice? But I just, I decided that I wasn't going to go that route. I was just going to get the thing out of my head and make right. it a reasonable, reasonably well formatted uh, concept that people can, right. you know, it, it's basically saying, well, what happens in 2035 when we can upload our brains into a computer? Well, what happens right. then? And what happens with this artificial intelligence singularity thing that's supposed to be happening? And, you know, I, I'm really into yeah. artificial intelligence too. That's another thing I'm trying to break up on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the, I think even that that uh, experience helps you probably write a little more structured as as compared to like I watched the the Flash, which is shot in Vancouver, and a lot of times the science fiction that they have is just you know, mumbo jumbo because <laughs> they're just trying to make it work and you're like, this physics would, you know, this doesn't defy, this doesn't fit in the norm of what would potentially yeah. happen. So I'm glad, you know, you're right. Well, so that's, that's, it that's took great. me uh, several years of research to go in. Like I would spend a month researching fusion drives. Like what's a fusion drive? Hmm. 
can you actually power a spaceship with this? And what about light speed? What's, you know, that's, was it Alcumier engines that are like, they warp space just in front of the engine as opposed to the whole thing? Oh, I, I don't and, know. And okay. they tend okay. to be, look like a cigar with two rings on each, like a ring on each end kind of thing. But uh, okay. it's it's that kind of stuff. And, uh, right, right. It, it lets you read more and lets yeah. you, you know, accordingly produce that up. But so it keeps you. You have to create your own little universe where all this stuff works. Some of it's out there. Right. You know, you just make it up and say, "Oh, that would be funny." Okay, what happens if you had a force field? Okay, well, and uh, okay. then, but, and I'm assuming that at some point in time there are going to be force fields. Maybe not 2035, but you know, sometime down the road. Yeah, but uh, then, then that exercise is really actually it's got the brain, you know, the, the wheels turning about what is artificial intelligence. And I've really become far more interested in it. It was part of an exploration really to say, okay, well, what's this artificial intelligence singularity and how is it really going to happen? Because right now, artificial intelligence is very uh, vertical, narrow vertical applications. So you're going to use artificial intelligence to figure out if your customers like the red car or the blue car. You know, uh, uh, do women yeah. like the red car or do men like the red car? You know, it's, it's uh, all of this kind of analysis on the markets, or if you want to get into financial stuff, then it gets really crazy. But um, you know, there's it, it's it's a good exercise for your brain, sort of keeps your brain flexible. But I also get to research all of this AI stuff. And, figure it out and say, well, and then you hear all the experts, you read all these TED talks and things. And they're talking about general artificial intelligence versus vertical art, artificial intelligence and, and how long it, they think it will take to happen. Well, it's, it's quite fascinating. It gives you uh, insight as you start reading and, and watching more and more of this and gives you more insight across the, the industry. All right. Uh, we'll keep an eye out for that. Okay, the last sort of general question. Uh, do you buy uh, coffee from the outside? Not not at this time, but in general. Do I? Like, am I a Starbucks guy? or? Yeah, Starbucks. Uh, Morgan, I, so I, I tend to go for the, uh, well, whatever's convenient. I'm, I'm a, I, I don't go out of my way to go to my favorite shop, or, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. But uh, I like the funky coffee mm -hmm. shops most. You know, okay. That's uh, you know, okay. with as long as it's not too weird I'm out there. But uh, I like the individual, uh, the smaller chains. Yeah, yeah. It's things that aren't quite so corporate. Although I, I do like Starbucks coffee, but, and I find that Tim Hortons just jangles me way too much. So <laughs> that's, that's too okay. fun. Uh, I've been I've been using this uh, this Sipply app. I think the one that's run by the Vancouver Coffee Snob. So it's just, it, it details like these elect eclectic shops all around yeah. Vancouver. It's, it's a nice Oh, tool, that, that would be cool. So, yeah. I, I must, I must yeah. get out and explore more. Now that summer's coming and I, I have my bicycle tuned up, I did my first drive. So right. I'm... Uh, it's all yeah, pumped up to go. Nice. <laughs> be Vancouver. Ride my, uh, I get some Birkenstocks and ride my bike right. around. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so the last part of sorts, uh, you know, is is about uh, diversifying your wealth, having multiple streams of income. So, is that something you follow 
or you know something that you would recommend? I would. I'm always looking for that. I always have. It's okay. uh, right. even when I was a kid, I had multiple projects. I I would do lawns and I would do backyards and I would fix fences and you know I just whatever was available. I was and deliver papers. I was always into stuff. So I carried this through college. And uh, okay. the geology aspect of it didn't lend itself to that very much because you it was intense. I mean, that's you know you're doing geochemistry, geophysics, neutron activation analysis for isotope deterioration, and you know all that kind of stuff. It's it's pretty technical. Yeah, I don't think you could apply that sort of. Yeah, you way. can't go and do yeah, that in yeah. somebody's backyard. You know, <laughs> although <laughs> exactly. I could go prospecting is really fun. I I love the prospecting oh. aspect of it, but uh, the okay. You know, I, I always have been interested in being entrepreneurial, and I think it probably comes from families. You know, I'm, I'm originally from Nova Scotia, so they were all into boat, boat building and fish packing and fish processing and shipping, and you know, that, all of that's what happens, and, and that's what my family was into. So I kind of absorbed all this sort of mentality. I said, okay, I can do this, I can do that. And um, you just basically do what you put your mind to kind of thing. But the, I would highly recommend that. And I'm trying to talk. I have, I have four, two stepsons and two sons. And I'm constantly preaching. There must be really tired of hearing me preach to them about this. <laughs> okay, so I, save 10% of your income. Doesn't matter what it is. Right. If you make five bucks, save 50 cents and save it. Don't right. blow it on Starbucks, you know. <laughs> fancy cars or anything like that just and uh drive the beat off toyota for as long as it will run you know, i keep preaching right. that stuff to have cash to go out and start a business because if you're an employee i mean you've done this you're you come home and you're brain dead right as and your motivation's gone you just want to watch netflix and see the start the lightsabers that was you know that's and, yeah. and then get up the next day and do it all over again and maybe go hiking on the weekend, kind of this same. Uh, but you know, it, it's so much better to have an external interest and drive yourself and and sort of self-discipline yourself to to be able to do it. And I'm kind of preaching to my sons. I, I think that if they they at least know what I'm saying, <laughs> whether or not they're they're buying into it, I don't know. <laughs> No, but but I understand that. I remember I was in a place, uh, you know, uh, like, I don't know, about four years back where it was sort of like this, as you just described, where you're so overworked that you just want to come home and not do anything else. But that that change has helped so much, you know, when you have this, you know, other project, these other things driving you, you, you would involuntarily want to work more, you know, sort of get those things going as you like you did with your book. You got it published. It, it wasn't just like, oh, I just need to write this. No, I'm like, I'm going to take it a step further. Yeah. So that's, and, that's uh, great. Uh, well, yeah. I got a shout point. I mean, it's, it's, I also learned how to write way much better. Like, I would think that my yeah. writing, my business writing skills are so much better now than they were. It's mind boggling because I, I wrote the first book, which is, you know, it's like 300 pages. And, and I thought it was, and I edited it like five times. I kept going through it, going through it, going through it. Kept finding errors and fixing it all up and handing it to people and say, what do you think? And they said, no, I think it should be this way. And I change it. But I put it into this tool called Pro Writing Aid. Highly recommend this, by the way. Uh, 
all one word okay. pro writing aid pro yeah. writing aid okay and okay and hit the analysis okay. button and it kept it started yeah. going and I was oh what have I got myself into here ran for about an hour and it stopped and it said I had 2700 errors <laughs> and oh, a lot okay. of it I must say probably half of it was stuff I couldn't fix like I I was making up words you know for things okay. and like the name of an alien race you know this obviously it's not going to be in your spell checker so but <laughs> and then the other half I still like 1600 errors that were you know bad grammar repetitive phrases um uh, uh -huh. repetitive use of words uh so it accounts for yeah, all of that. Yeah, it, it does, and it's um, my my writing is so much better now than when it like I then I worked for about six months cleaning the thing up after I did that. Um, it was another writer that started reading it and said, "Mike, um, you really have to go and use this tool." I said, "I'm I'm sitting here flagging so many errors for you." <laughs> but he was being really good. <laughs> he he kept saying, "Look, you know what? I'll I'll do another chapter." And then he ended up with about a hundred markups on it. And he said, you know what, it's, this is tedious. He said, get this tool and mm. run your story through it and then give it back to me. So that's what I did. And I think he was a lot happier with it, but I did get a, a review that said, well, wow, this is really what science fiction is all about. So that that's not a bad thing. That's, that's my one. That, that, that's <laughs> great. Yeah. That helps. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. So we will uh, make it a point to, you know, show that or, you know, hope that some people at least could go ahead and read that book. Uh, was there anything else you want to say, Michael? Well, uh, I think that in terms of the, um, the the startup thing, one of the things that I found is the huge frustration and the huge learning curve was finance. And I now have uh, sort of social media friends, I should say, or acquaintances. Okay from the investment community okay. in, say, Silicon Valley, New York, and BC, right. and uh, Alberta. Um, and the, the key, and a lot of people, they go to start a business, they say, okay, I've got this great concept, I have to go out and get a million dollars and start it. It's, it's not going to happen. Right. Um, unless yeah. you're Elon Musk, you're not going to generate money with, right. from a napkin, right? True. You have to go out right. there and generate revenue or like a million customers like Facebook. And it, right. it has to be right. one of, it has to be there already. So that the, what the requirement is, is what's the minimum amount of work that I need to do to make cash flow on this thing or to generate right. users. And right. That's, that's the whole thing is, is, and you have, how do I be disruptive? with this you know i'm not just going to yeah, do the same old thing everybody else is doing is because then nobody's going to bother with me right but it's it's like um what's that lift for example it's it just devastates the the taxi business wherever it starts up right it's it's fabulous yeah. service it's cheaper it's faster you know where your cars are coming from you know that the guy's being rated by other passengers and he knows that you're being rated by other drivers so that if you're a jerk you're not going to get somebody <laughs> showing up for you right so your behavior is better 
And it just it's it just disrupts that whole model of I have no clue who this guy is is showing up to drive my my wife to the airport. You know, it's oh he's a taxi driver. Yeah, right. And then they have the taxi driver has to worry about, well, does this guy have a knife? You know? It's sure. and it's yeah. it's very yeah. tense and uncomfortable and Yeah, it becomes like collateral, like you know, like a yeah, yeah. That's so it's, yeah. It's, okay. That that's the so, that's the whole thing of how can you be disruptive? How can you help somebody better or solve a problem and do it for the least amount of money and prove that it works before you go after money? And then really, what right. the thing is, you should you should really want to not have investment if possible. Is you don't want to give away your money, right? No, that's that's I think yeah. That's this one thing I think Shark Shark Tank and Dragons in the Start is that you don't go out seeking investors you go out seeking consumers you know people who would join your product like you know uh, do that and then you know you worry about the, as you mentioned the money yeah then you may want to expand you may say well look I I have to have a whole bunch of QA guys and hire a bunch of QA and security guys in here to lock this down that's my personal opinion <laughs> i like to see that tested rigorously and continuously like okay. you know hire some white hats and get them to come in and bang on your system all day long to see what you can do yeah make sure wonderful all right michael thank you so much i know we went overboard so thank you so much for your time